1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's been a rough few weeks with the coronavirus ravaging the world. But we got the first few inklings of good news recently when Wuhan, China, the first major city to be hit hard by the coronavirus, started lifting some of its restrictions on travel and business. Now, I may have made you think a little bit that it's good news, but in actuality, things are looking pretty dire. It turns out not only is Wuhan still under pretty heavy restrictions with life not yet back to normal, But the rest of the world is showing more signs that we still have not figured out how to fight the coronavirus, with even some success stories in the past looking grimmer and grimmer by the day. This is Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beacham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward.
2: Hey.
3: Uh, As always, a cheery intro, Zach. Thank you so much.
0: I also want to say, before we get into it, hag Sameach to all of our Jewish listeners. I had a lovely Zoom Seder with my family last night. I'm wearing a stylish Passover t-shirt this morning, not my one about how I couldn't find the Afikomen, which I do have. Those of you who are not Jewish, apologies for all the Hebrew this morning you know it's an important holiday for us it's like jewish thanksgiving
2: i accept your apologies Zach.
0: <laughs> you're you're welcome <laughs> you're you're welcome jeff anyway i hope everyone's having having a good day so uh now that we've gotten the happy stuff out of the way let's uh, let, let's talk a little bit about uh what's happening starting with wuhan You know, it's a relaxation. It really is. There were some serious restrictions on travel to China, but Alex, it's a a little bit more attenuated than you might think from the footage of cars suddenly exiting the city that's been all over the internet recently.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, just to give you an idea, Wuhan, of course, which was the the epicenter of of the coronavirus outbreak, it's where it first began and spread around the world. It's a a city of 11 million people, uh, which, to give you an idea, there are 10 million people roughly in all of Sweden. So it's a pretty big place with a lot of folks. And it started to, you know, 10 weeks or so after the outbreak initially started has come back to life. Uh, A lot of businesses are open. A lot of people are headed back to work. There's still a lot of recovery to come um, as, you know, a bunch of folks still aren't necessarily buying. Some store owners are actually outside their shops to sell their products. And this is seen by a lot of people as potentially good, right? Because now the place where the virus started has a sense of normalcy to a certain extent and gives people some hope. But I will be extremely skeptical here for a couple reasons. The first is I do not trust any official numbers or any stats from the Chinese government at all. So the notion that China is saying that, ooh, Wuhan is good now and everything can start to go back to normal, I just don't buy it. I think it's too early to make that kind of claim. And then the second issue is that almost every medical expert says it's way too early to resume any sort of sense of normalcy. The fact that almost all businesses are open, that public transportation kind of going back to normal, this return to normalcy too quickly could lead to a second wave of cases, which would mean that this moment of optimism that a bunch of people are looking toward is kind of, okay, well, this is how we go back to the before times, uh, may actually be a reacceleration or a, a re-emergence, better said, of uh, the spread.
0: Alex, that's a really important point, right? It's This is just the earliest stages of opening in Wuhan, and we don't know what the consequences are of them doing so. And the lessons from other parts of East Asia that we thought had a decent handle on the coronavirus are not promising as of right now.
2: Yeah, and we're actually seeing this play out a little bit farther away from Wuhan, down in Hong Kong. At the very beginning, there was some criticism of Carrie Lam, the chief executive, that she wasn't acting quickly enough. But then she she did implement measures basically barring people, you know, a lot of people coming from outside of Hong Kong, including from China, closing the borders as much as possible. And the early measures that they put in place, including social distancing, the stuff that we're all used to hearing now, hand washing, um, and wearing masks, which is something that here in the U.S. and in and other Western countries, we haven't actually started doing much until just recently, but Hong Kong, a lot of people were wearing masks when they were going out. They were staying home, and it really looked like they were the, these measures were working, right? So at the, the beginning of March, uh, according to CNN, so Hong Kong has 7.5 million people, and there were only like 150 cases at the beginning of March, and people were looking to Hong Kong you know, along with other places like like Taiwan and South Korea as a model of, you know, how did they get this under control, which is great, except that it looks like they let their guard down too soon. And so basically, the cases are starting to spike now, and they're seeing a second wave that is actually looking like it's going to be worse than the first wave. And it looks like what's happening is that it's people who uh, are, are Hong Kong residents who had left um, before the outbreak and are now coming back in. And so they're letting people From outside come in, and that's where the virus is really coming from. And so it just kind of goes to show that when you, you know, you think you have this under control, you know, even when the cases are low and everything looks great, and then you start to relax these measures, if you do it and you're not careful, you could see a huge spike, and in this case, potentially even higher than the first, you know, wave of cases, which is really, really scary.
0: I mean, I guess it it makes a certain amount of sense, right? Because what social distancing does, these measures primarily, is it allows you to suppress the rates of transition. The problem, though, is that if you don't have everybody, if you haven't identified all of the different individuals who could be transiting it, and you don't keep an incredibly tight track on new arrivals or internal movement, then somebody will probably have it. And given how contagious this disease is and how difficult it is, given that so many people are asymptomatic, then eventually it'll start spreading again. Right? It seems like judging from this Hong Kong experience, that there are certain elements of controlling coronavirus that are not just difficult challenges, but they're outside the capacities of an extremely advanced modern state, even one with a tremendous amount of power and high levels of technology, like Hong Kong or Singapore, which is another country that's seen, I'm looking at a chart right now of its new cases. Singapore did really aggressive measures early on, and now in early April... It's seeing its highest levels of cases throughout the entire epidemic, according to a chart from a research fellow at the Peterson Institute, which is an international uh, financial think tank. uh, It's it's really, really striking data.
3: And yet another blow to the dictatorships are really good at stopping the coronavirus argument that Singapore's cases are coming back. But I think what's important here is there's a notion that social distancing used early on and imposed well or decently well early on can make it so eventually you kind of go from zero to 100 really quickly. And I think we've heard from a lot of experts already is that there's probably going to be a bit of a cycle, um, not only in terms of, you know, waves kind of coming back, but also in terms of, well, you have lockdowns or you have stay-at-home orders, and then maybe you can go out back out for a while, and then there'll be kind of a new wave of cases, and then maybe we have to go back to stay-at-home orders or lockdowns. <laughs> and this, this notion of, like, you know, you can, you stay at home and then everything's okay again. And you go back to how it was. I don't think we're there. I think we're at the way early beginnings of this. And this is based again on my conversations with medical experts. So I, I it is sad. And of course, upsetting to see a bunch of countries kind of that seemed like they had it kind of solved early on, having a reemergence of cases. But I think this was always going to be the case, regardless. This is always going to be true. I think that's what we have to kind of mentalize ourselves for and prepare ourselves for, is that the, even in the United States, if we kind of get a handle on this, and like, to be clear, social distancing measures, as we're using, seem to be working. And by seem, I mean are working. <laughs> um, like, the number of cases is going down. But... That doesn't mean that, again, we all get to leave our homes at some point and everything goes back to normal. There's going to be a kind of cyclical process here. The hope is that each you know circle, I guess, or each wave is, is lower than the previous one.
0: And and by, sorry, to be clear, by the number of cases are going down, you mean we are successfully bending the curve here in the United States. And the, Correct, the, yes. The rate of infection is slowing because of social distancing, not that we're actually seeing a decline in case numbers. Yes, thank you. That was right. clear, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Because right. that's the the rate happening.
2: at which they were rising is not as fast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's good. Yes, thank
3: you. <laughs> right.
2: So I think it's one thing it's important to note about the Wuhan case, um, just to go back to that for a second. So, you know, we talked at the top about how you know, these restrictions on leaving the city are are being lifted and how that's could potentially end up spreading things. But one thing that's interesting to me, and I think, you know, we're going to see this as a, a case study, and I wish it weren't a case study in people's lives, but... According to the New York Times, people are actually only allowed to leave if they can prove to the authorities using this government-sectioned app that they're not at risk of spreading the virus. And I don't really know how they're doing that, but you know, they are using or trying to use technology to try to control it. So it's not like everybody is flooding out. You know, those videos that you mentioned, Zach, you know, showing cars streaming out of, of Wuhan, those were all put out by Chinese state-run media. So there's one on, on the Global Times that you can go see. And when you see other reporters, like uh, New York Times has a good piece on it, out in the streets of Wuhan, they're a lot quieter than than it really seems. And I think part of that is because, again, you know, China is trying to put out this image that like everything's fine, everything's going back to normal. But in reality, they still have really, really strict controls. And I think we're going to see whether that works, whether this you know this app thing they've come up with to how to prove that you're not at risk of spreading the virus. Like, I'm not sure if we even know that yet, like scientifically, whether people can still spread it after they've had it. Um, and, and So, you know, even in the U.S., like we're talking about, you know, the, the 30 days to to curb the spread, right? That Mike Pence keeps holding up that sign at every press conference. Trump is pushing really hard to reopen the economy. And it just goes to show that like, as much as you may want that, and like a lot of people want that. I get it. I'm tired of being stuck at home. It's not fun, but at the same time, like I'm not going to just go. Well, I'm tired of it. Screw everybody else, you know, and just go out and and start infecting people.
0: But but not just stuck at home, right? It's it's the massive economic costs of lockdown. Yeah. As as I think we've discussed before, and other Vox Media podcasts have covered pretty extensively. There's no actual trade off, right? If you just let the virus run rampant, you're still going to have super significant economic consequences because when you have a ton of sick people and people who are dying, a lot of people are just not going to go out voluntarily on their own because they don't want to get the illness. Workers will die. Healthcare systems are overloaded. Right, Both are terrible for the economy. But if it looks like, and you're a political leader, that you have a handle on the virus, case number is really low, the spread seems relatively contained— The pressure from the business community and ordinary voters to reopen or or, or stakeholders in an authoritarian state is going to be absolutely overwhelming and for totally understandable reasons, right? I I don't know a single person who hasn't had some concern either for themselves or their family members in the United States or in in any other country where where I know people. Because of the lockdown measures that their country has imposed, right? The economic cost is severe and significant, and you're going to want to reopen, right? And in China, there's an extra added element of PR, right? They they don't want to be blamed for this crisis that they caused, as we've, again, discussed on the show pretty repeatedly. And then there's a new report recently saying that they should have known as early as November, which is earlier than we thought even, according to the, this, this classified U.S. government report. Um, so China wants PR, but even in a country like South Korea, that's a democratic state, uh, there it's not. It's not just about international PR. They didn't cause it. It's about wanting to to stop people from
2: suffering. We have a lot of perceptions of you know these evil corporations and businesses, which you know to some degree I get right wanting and pushing and you can you can picture these like lobbies calling up President Trump and saying, you know, my bottom line is getting hurt and my investors need money. We need to reopen. But like these are also people. and you know, they also have family members and friends and are also concerned about, you know, the spread of the coronavirus. So we've seen some corporations and and CEOs actually act pretty responsibly. Um we've also seen some like Elon Musk act pretty irresponsibly. So uh, it kind of goes to show, you know, just depends on who the who the person is. But I mean, in terms of, you know, letting people get back to work, it would be ideal if there were some sort of like the serology testing or, you know, to figuring out if there's people, if there are people who are now immune and who can't spread it. Um, there's, you know, discussion of things like having like a, a passport or, a you know, a bracelet or a stamp or something that says, I've had it, I can't get it, I'm immune. And so getting those people to be able to go back to work because we're seeing, I know I'm personally seeing here uh, in Washington, in Northern Virginia, Delivery services, grocery delivery, everything is getting so jammed up and so just overtaxed the system. It's really hard to get like basic stuff anymore in in any kind of reasonable time frame. Um, And we're seeing in the U.S. like grocery workers getting sick. We're seeing you know transit authority um, workers getting sick. And so if we were you know able to establish this like pool of people who could go back to work without spreading the virus, that would be fantastic. The problem is that we're not at that point yet we don't have that that ability yet and you know i've watched every press conference every single day from the white house briefing and they're working on it but we're not there yet and so i'm kind of a little bit skeptical about this chinese move to just like let people back out and say i pinky swear i'm i'm not contagious well that's great if it works but what if it doesn't and we end up seeing another wave from Wuhan. Like, that's really scary.
3: I mean, we're always going to have a bit of uncertainty, right? I mean, apps are not. This is a very human-centric thing. The government can only do so much. I mean, but I think sort of the major point out of what we've talked about so far, and, and we'll continue to talk about throughout this episode, is that despite the follies that, of course, we follow most closely here in the U.S., like, no country has figured this out. No, Nobody. No authoritarian nation, no, no leader, no democracy. No one has figured this out. There are countries that have done better than others. There are countries that have implemented the right practices early and aggressively and had a population that went along with it. But no one has figured this out. And, and even the best places, again, we might see second waves. In the worst places, we may see more deaths than we otherwise would have. Uh, we're seeing powerful countries struggle to have their own equipment. And we're seeing poor countries do even worse because of their situation. And regardless of sort of station, regardless of development, really, um, no one has a real handle on how to deal with this long term. No one has the answers. Everyone has sort of best guesses. And so whether you're using apps, whether you're trying to do kind of like herd immunity type stuff, whatever you're doing, there are clearly some better answers than others. But let's be clear that this is a worldwide problem that every government is struggling with. And I, having done now I think five in-depth stories on different countries' responses, like that's the common thread. Is right. that every everyone's got their own sort of idiosyncrasies as to why they're not doing as well as they could be, but no one is doing like great other than maybe like one or two countries.
0: So, we're going to go to the break really quickly, but before we do that I w- I want to say that it is very clear that lockdowns save lives in these international comparisons, even if there's a second wave when you start to relax them. And we're, that, right. that's what we're going to talk about in the second half of the show, where we look at two countries who were pretty slow to impose lockdowns and are uh, seeing the consequences right now in a pretty grim fashion.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself.
0: Welcome back worldly listeners. We've been talking about countries that have started to lift lockdowns that had seemed successful when it comes to coronavirus only to see a rise in infections again a second wave that has forced another round of lockdowns. This shows that, you know, even the best countries, the best practices ones don't have a full handle on coronavirus, but now we want to talk about the countries who didn't impose Lockdowns particularly swiftly. And it looked early on like two of those countries, Sweden and Japan, might have been doing okay. But now the most recent data and evidence suggests that uh, things are not as peachy as they may have seemed. And in fact, these countries may be paying a significant cost for their slowness to impose distancing measures. Let's start with Sweden. Alex, what's going on there? So, the government
3: kind of made it bet that... Locking down the entire country early would be not really beneficial because of the reasons we talked about in the first part of the show. That if you had everyone inside, eventually people would come outside and they would there would be that sort of cyclical second, third wave stuff that we talked about. Sweden's kind of bet was, well, what if we keep, the, instead of going from like zero to a hundred, what if we keep the country like at a simmer of 30, right? On sort of an imaginary scale of activity. And so some people would get sick. But over time, enough people would get sick that the country would develop sort of, I guess, a herd immunity. Um, the person in charge of this is a guy named Anders Tegnell. He's the chief epidemiologist of Sweden. And he denies consistently that herd immunity is the goal in Sweden. But he's also said, like, well, that's not necessarily against the aims of what we're up to. And in fact, has said, like, look, Sweden has sort of two options. It either gets vaccinations or we develop herd immunity. So... He's kind of making that case uh, I also talked to the Minister of health of Sweden for the story and she basically told me that you know we are trying to flatten the curve and that we are you know, still imposing a lot of those so- social distancing measures and telling people to stay home and like look, look a lot of Swedes have stayed home um, the transportation is down vacations uh, you know people going on vacation are down uh, people going to work are down etc cetera, etc cetera. some people I talked to in Stockholm said it's pretty empty the problem is the national government has not forced people inside or has not really said, like, stay at home, everyone. And so a bunch of people kept going out, uh, a bunch of people kept going to bars and, and all kinds of restaurants and shopping and whatever, and work. And now the cases seem to be escalating higher to the point that the per capita death rate in Sweden is higher than its regional neighbors, like Denmark and Norway, and even the United States. So this is a major problem.
0: Alex, I want to um, really zero in on these statistics. There's a quote from a, from a Guardian article that came out this weekend. On the absolute toll, in, in comparing Sweden and those countries, which I found really striking, so I'm just going to read it. On Sunday, Sweden reported a total of 401 deaths so far from COVID-19, up 8% from Saturday and greater than the totals of its three Nordic neighbors combined. Sweden's toll per million inhabitants is 37, compared with 28 in Denmark, 12 in Norway, and 4.5 in Finland. All of those countries had imposed serious and stringent social distancing relatively quickly, at least as compared to Sweden.
2: There's a part of your, your article, Alex, that I, I kind of want to get into a little bit on the Sweden case. It was this argument of of trust and like a mutual kind of trust between the government and the people. You know, the people you had talked to, and obviously I want you to talk about this more yourself, but we're basically saying, look, you know, people pretty well trust the government in Sweden. And Sweden was kind of replying with trust as well. And basically their approach was, look, if we just kind of ask people politely to please maybe, you know, stay at home and, and not go out as much. We think they'll probably do it. And that was kind of the bet they were making, right? Like, we're not going to impose hardcore measures. We're not going to have police out in the street finding people. We're just going to ask nicely, and it'll probably work. Can you just kind of talk through that that strategy and and whether or not it actually did work?
3: I mean, it did to a certain extent. I don't think we can knock it. I mean, a bunch of Swedes have stayed home. Uh, a bunch of Swedes have followed the social distancing measures. The issue is that a lot of businesses were allowed to stay open. And I should say, where like Denmark and, and Norway closed their borders early, or especially Denmark was one of the first European countries to do it. Um, Sweden did. Their argument was like, it's already here. So the, the virus is already here. So it doesn't make really sense to close our borders. Uh But yeah, to the trust point is like there has always been a pretty mutual two-way street uh, between the Swedish government and its people. Uh, That's what a lot of uh, experts told me. And so when the Swedish government says, you know, like, we're telling you to stay home and we believe that you'll do it, a lot did. Uh, One, I think, caveat to this is that the Swedes in generally have never really had any social restrictions in their past. A lot of They're allowed to go out. They really, you know, uh, so these are generalities, but enjoy the ability to go outside, enjoy the ability to do what they want to do. And so I think the government also sort of slow walked this, that any sort of early restriction and real sort of aggressive measures would have led to a sort of backlash from the public at a, we won't get into this, but a precarious time for Swedish politics. So um, I think that was part of it.
2: Yeah. And there was this part that you talked about that at the same time that other countries, including its neighbors, were limiting, you know, gatherings of like 10 people or more, they allowed gatherings of up to 500 people. And you had this thing in there about how organizers of events were selling 499 tickets to events, like, on purpose to, like, stay directly below that. And people were buying them. Uh. So it it seems like without those very strict measures and uh, forcing businesses to close, there were a lot of people who were like, look, I'm still going to try to make money because I got to survive. And, like, the issue there is, yeah, the people who choose to stay home, a lot of them are. But it's if not everyone is, then you still have the virus out in the wild, so to speak. And then you have, in your piece, you talked about, like, the elderly people were still going out to public squares and, like, there wasn't, like, that really strong messaging of, we have to do this collectively to protect the most vulnerable. And so people were just like, I don't know, I'm probably okay. And now we're seeing the consequences of that.
3: Yeah, I mean, about a third of old folks' homes or elder care homes in, in Stockholm, the capital, are now infected, uh, at least have one case. And, and there, there are experts who tell me, I mean, people differ. Of course, when I talk to government officials, they were like, everything's fine, we're working on it. Medical experts I talk to who are very critical of the response effectively are saying that it's probably too late for Stockholm. That Stockholm, which is a a large city, uh, especially for that country, you know, is going to have a really high rate. The other parts of the country, it might not be too late for, especially the rural areas, although they are preparing for the worst. Uh, I mean, if there's any sign of like where Sweden did not need to be here, it's that the Swedish military is already setting up a field hospital in a, a major convention center in the capital. So again, if you, and then if you listen to the government, some folks would say like, this is kind of what they want, is that they do want a, a steady rate of infection. So, because their bet, unlike the U.S. or a bunch of other countries where, you know, stay inside, you flatten the curve, whatever. Sweden still wants to flatten the curve, but again, they kind of want a simmer of infections. So they kind of reach an immunity level earlier than other countries. That's the bet they're making, but the current stats
0: don't look too good. So I want to briefly talk about Japan before we end, because Japan is, is kind of a similar case, right? It wasn't as much of a deliberate strategy, as far as I can tell, as Sweden's of like, trust the government, we'll work through it. But it was also a, let's try to prioritize staying open early on. And it, it did seem like Early in the Japan situation, that they didn't have too many cases. The problem, though, at least one of the problems that's emerged recently, is that the the data was a function of its incredibly low testing rate. Japan had early on in the crisis been testing at rates even lower than the United States, which is one of the world's uh, worst offenders in terms of um, rates of testing internationally. And so that meant that Japan's numbers uh, in terms of deaths and infections seemed really low. But for all we know, those numbers early on uh, were a mirage, and it it seems, in fact, like those numbers were a mirage, given that the Abe government has now admitted that they need to impose strict lockdowns across the country, even if their government doesn't have quite the same powers to do so as some other ones internationally.
2: Right. So, you know, we talked about this on a previous show a little bit, but- there's a really great piece from a freelancer named Eric Margolis that we ran before. You know, we saw what we're seeing now in Japan, and it was basically saying that that this may be a mirage. Like, yes, it's possible that Japan just may have gotten lucky somehow. But even as recently as like a, a you know a week or two ago, people were still going out in droves to see the cherry blossoms, which are, you know, it's beautiful and bloom in spring in Japan. People were still going to bars and to restaurants and, and just living life normally and and gathering in large groups. And it was like, well, we're probably okay because, look, our numbers are really low. And, eh. you know, the, the piece was saying, like, look, this, this was probably going to be a precursor to something really, really bad. And sure enough, just a few weeks later, that's what we're seeing. Japan is now scrambling because they just were so lax so early on and is now trying to catch up. But again... It's almost like, you know, I hate to use this cliche, but like the genie's out of the bottle, right? Like once you're in crisis and you're only once you're in crisis, then do you start implementing measures. It's kind of too late. Um, You know, it'll still help slow the spread if you implement social distancing measures. But you're already at a point that you didn't have to be at in the first place.
0: The numbers from Japan in the past week I found particularly striking. According to a New York Times article from Tuesday, Japan's cases had doubled from the week prior, which is a pretty striking increase given their limited testing. My sense here is that Japanese people, or at least some people in the country, have been concerned about this for a while. There's been a lot of criticism uh, for the past weeks of Prime Minister Abe's approach because he's, he's barely been in the public spotlight or wasn't early in the crisis. People were wondering where he was and what he was doing, and it was just this complete lack of leadership. And now they're struggling to catch up. But the problem, and I sort of alluded to this earlier, is that Japan's uh, system of government doesn't allow the prime minister or even local leaders to impose lockdowns, you know, authoritatively using police powers in the way that uh, you can see in some other countries. And so the result is uh, a situation where now you're, you're trying to shift dramatically towards a lockdown, which by the way, they're doing in Sweden too, right? There are new, there's a bill being debated in the legislature right now to try to expand the government's powers to make sure that they can actually address the problem that our lax response has created. And in Japan, they're doing the same thing, but they have limited legislative constitutional powers to be able to do it. So now- they're rushing to implement social distancing, but it's not clear how effective it will be when people have gotten um, messages for weeks now saying, you know, don't worry about it too much. Go live your life. Maybe people in Japan will get it. Some people will. I don't know. It's just, it's genuinely difficult to say and could lead to, it, especially in a country whose demographics are like Japan's, uh, where you have a, an extremely high percentage of elderly citizens— uh, the consequences could be disastrous.
2: And just to remind people uh, who may not be thinking about this right now, the reason Japan has that constitution is because we, we wrote it for them, essentially, and made them have that kind of constitution as a result of of World War II and basically trying to keep the central government in you know the post kind of emperor world from being you know all powerful and and able to do these kinds of things which you know at the time obviously there were good reasons to to do that but you're seeing kind of sometimes the limits of federalism i think we're seeing some of that in the united states where you're having kind of ad hoc responses of each locality each each state trying to do their own thing and you know it works when they're they're taking the right steps but you're only as safe as your neighbor, right? And there was a, uh, you know, talk earlier this week in the U.S. about, like, here in, in our country, we're used to not having hard checks between states, right? Like, kind of like in, in the EU, you can just travel without needing, like, a passport or anything to go from state to state. But, like, what if we need to start implementing border checks from people? Uh, you know, what does that mean? Um, and so it's just interesting to kind of see that playing out now.
3: I talked to some experts from from when I was in uh, that I met when I was in Japan over a year ago now. And and kind of two things became clear from, from that conversation. The first is something that's been alluded to already, that the notion that Japan wasn't testing immensely from the start is, like, it is true and insane, honestly. Um, if there's one, literally one lesson that I think every country has should have learned by now, it was test early, test often, and track. And the fact that it isn't happening, I granted, like, some countries there are limited amounts of actual tests and or they might not be able to buy enough or they don't have the infrastructure to dole them out. OK, fine. But like Japan should, honestly, if any country should have been able to pull this off, Japan should have been one. So they it,
2: did. They did. Ha- they were only like using, they weren't using like, like, all their 30, tests. Yeah, right. Yeah, Like 30 percent of their capacity just because they chose to. My,
3: my point being like the fact that they didn't is just a nuts thing. Honestly, the second thing that came out of the conversation and it's it was something that was in the back of my mind and I'm, and I'm glad someone brought it up. There's a massive, massive sort of culture of work in Japan that that makes it really hard for a lot of the population to not want to go outside. You know, commute to their job, be at their job for late hours, you know, w- without like really intense government intervention saying, do not do this. South Korea sort of defeated that. Korea has has a very similar sort of style of like late night work culture intensity to the point that a bunch of people I know in Korea are like, they, they don't like it. They don't like spending tons of time away from family at their job. So a similar problem in Japan and, and without the government kind of coming in and saying the public's health is more important than you continuing to go to your place of work or, or follow the life that you led, it was always going to backfire. And so, th- this Japan was a place that it should have, that it had the resources to put in, like, the right measures and it had at least a way, a political way of kind of signaling to people, hey, stay home. The fact that it didn't do both of those things, um, the fact that it really waited like, the Swedish case, you can sort of go, okay, well, they have a different theory. In Japan's case, it's just complete mismanagement from the start. I, I And... Uh, It is really, if if it gets as bad as it is expected to in Tokyo, which by many measures is the world's biggest city, um, and elsewhere in that country, uh, it could really, really be bad there. I'm very, very worried about Japan.
0: So, worldly listeners, if you're in Japan or Sweden, we really hope you all are staying safe and staying at home. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, uh, for helping us work out all the kinks in our home studio. I don't know if you heard my dog whining outside my door. One of them wanted to come in, and so he did come in partway through the recording. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review. Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts and email us if you have any uh, interesting ideas for coronavirus podcasts or stories from your country that you want to talk about at Worldly at vox.com. talk to you all later bye bye
1: what does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape this is Scott Galloway host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself